Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and it's the Center from Reality Podcast. Today, excuse me, today is February 22nd. That's a Wednesday, hump day. Yay. Anyways, I'm sitting here looking out the window. It's been cold, really cold today. A little bit of snow, a little bit of sunshine. I went out on a run, at first overdressed and then underdressed. It's all over the place, but I want to start by saying I want to thank HBO. As you guys know, I've been having um, you know, some issues with Netflix lately, and I'm not too thrilled with the platform. But I do want to thank HBO for putting a lot of the Bond catalog, the James Bond catalog, on, on HBO Max to watch. Uh, I've been kind of nightly, or at least every couple nights, watching you know, a James Bond movie. And I just have to say, I've, I've gone through the Timothy Dalton ones again, uh, The Living Daylights and License to Kill. And I have a pretty bold take that I think he might be either the best or the second best Bond. It's interesting because the critics just panned him back in the 80s when he was in The Living Daylights. And over time, the world has kind of changed. They've kind of warmed up to Timothy Dalton. And he's kind of cold, and especially after the Roger Moore era, which was very goofy, slapstick, almost like screwball spy comedy mixed with um, action. Timothy Dalton was kind of cold and different, so I think a lot of people just weren't ready for that. But I I was watching the movie, and I think he really is the true interpretation of Ian Fleming's actual James Bond from the books. And what I mean is that, yeah, Bond is kind of witty. Yeah, he likes the ladies. But there's also more of a darkness and a quiet demeanor to him that was missing in the Roger Moore and Sean Connery movies. And... I would also say Daniel Craig kind of goes into that as well. Kind of this, Daniel Craig's a little more playful, but there's also that kind of quiet darkness to him that Ian Fleming really reflected in the books more than we've seen on TV. So anyways, long story short, watching The Living Daylights last night, one of the best Bond movies, again, feel free to call me out if you disagree, totally fine. But the second half of the movie, you know, you have Bond fighting with the Mujahideen and, you know, the freedom fighters in Afghanistan that eventually became the Taliban. And it's just interesting to look at that time period during the Russian invasion and think about how we were helping the Mujahideen and thinking about how they actually were just trying to kick out invaders. And then you just kind of think about what happened when the the Pakistani intelligence services, the ISI, ended up, you know, funneling in weapons to them. Then you had these radicals coming from Pakistan into Afghanistan. And it's just interesting to think about how much change. That's what I was thinking about when I see Bond riding horses with the Mujahideen fighters, kicking out the Russians. And then you just go, damn, did Pakistan and the United States really mess this up? When you think about what happened when the Mujahideen eventually formed into the Taliban, and here we are now with Afghanistan just a mess. So anyways, today I want to talk about... We're going to have a few lighter topics and then also a few less light topics. I want to start by talking about Jimmy Carter and why his deregulation of the home brewing industry actually maybe led to the craft beer boom that I enjoy, like probably many of you enjoy. So it's actually a libertarian argument for why Jimmy Carter wasn't the worst. Then I want to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene's madness and the disturbing part of her national divorce comments that I have really thought about over the last day. And then I want to talk about Dmitry Medvedev, um, who has warned about Russia's future and Russia not existing. So lots of interesting stuff. And anyways, um, I don't know. How do we start this? So 
Jim, Jimmy Carter is an interesting guy, and I'm sure most of you are aware that he's been put into hospice care, which pretty much means that his days are numbered, right? And he's quite old, so it'll be tragic, but he's, he's really been just an incredible guy. Not the best president, though I do think he was dealt a lot of difficult times when he was president, but at the same time, after leaving office, being a one-term president that I don't want to call him a failure, but it was not a successful presidency, and even Democrats admit that. After leaving office, though, he wasn't the type of guy who, you know, went on super yachts and was partying it up. He wasn't like a Jeff Bezos or or even like Obama or the Clintons or whoever else you want to talk about, or Trump for sure. He, he kind of just led to a life of decency. You know, he's been with his wife for like 70 plus years. He, he lived kind of humble means, uh, always nice, always trying to help. He had melanoma that spread, and he almost died of that. He's broken his hip about every time I go on CNN to watch the news. And still, at into his 80s and 90s, he was still doing humanitarian work. You know, he was really involved in Habitat for, for Humanity. And I guess what I would say is that he's one of these guys that I think the first half of his life was maybe not the best when he was president, but the second chapter has just been amazing, you know, and this is a guy who's just seen it all, and it's just fascinating, and he always weighs in, and he's always been a decent guy, and I think we will definitely miss people like him, because I think he was kind of one of the last of the decents out there, especially in leadership in our politics, and yeah, he was kind of a transitionary president, right? He was at a time when it seemed like the world was changing, our politics were changing, our economy was changing, and maybe that's why he only was a one-term guy. He was kind of a transition. And I do understand the comparisons between him and Biden in a lot of ways. But anyways, I like to read Reason Magazine sometimes, and this afternoon I found a great article about Jimmy Carter in it. And Reason Magazine, it's the big, it's the main libertarian magazine in the United States, just to provide that information for you if you don't know. And anyways, this article is called uh, Jimmy Carter Sparked a Craft Beer Explosion by Getting Government Out of the Way. And look, we could talk about a lot of things with Jimmy Carter, but this is something I didn't know, so I wanted to talk about it on here. And basically, the article discusses in quotes, by legalizing home brewing, Carter laid important groundwork for the entrepreneurs and investors who are the true heroes of the craft brewing revolution. And if you guys know me, then you know that I like my craft beers. Um, IPAs, Pilsners, whatever else there may be. I also like Hefeweizens, or Hefeweizens, as so many people call them. It drives me crazy. But anyways, I like my beer, and I wanted to do something on a lighter note, and I thought it was interesting that Jimmy Carter helped open up basically the craft beer market, and it led to an explosion. And interestingly, during his time as president, basically Carter signed H.R. 1377, and this made it legal for Americans to beer, uh, to brew beer in their homes. And of course, look, I'm not saying Jimmy Carter is directly responsible for the craft beer boom, the craft beer movement. He was, though, instrumental in passing this bill, at least. And it had a cascading effect of deregulating the industry. And it allowed people to start experimenting with beer making. And I think my favorite line in the article is in the beginning when Eric Bohm, who's the author, he writes here in quotes, and despite a deep personal aversion to hagiographic histories of any American president, 
This week's news that Carter is receiving hospice care at home has made me thinking about exactly how much credit the 39th president deserves for the proliferation of crisp lagers and bitter IPAs on offer at thousands of American craft breweries. Interesting. And, you know, I have to say when I saw this article, I'm glad he wrote it because it got me thinking about this too. And anyways, Carter did play an important role here. Basically, from my understanding, is that this, this bill that he signed was going to overturn a pro- Prohibition-era law, right? Prohibition, banning alcohol, and there was a lot of people doing black market brewing, blue, brewing, sorry, black market sales, etc. And there was this Prohibition-era law that looked to limit, A, competition in the brewing market and wanted to stop people from making booze at home. And it was outdated, and it was good, that Jimmy Carter and Congress at the time wanted to scrap that. It makes sense. You shouldn't be locking up people for home brewing in the 1970s, right? And so by doing this, as Eric Bohm writes here in quotes, Carter gave Americans the freedom to try out a new hobby, and some of them quickly turned professional. And just to give some examples on some of these people experimenting and how they actually took off, uh, Sierra Nevada Brewing was launched in 1980 by Ken Grossman and Paul Camuzzi. And fittingly, these two actually started making beer at home, and then it took off. And from my understanding, Sierra Nevada is widely considered the first craft beer. I don't think it's that good anymore because there's just so many better ones, but that's a whole other conversation. Also, there's this guy, Jim Cock, who founded Sam Adams Brewery in 84, and he also got his start from home brewing. So, of course, you know, you can't just directly say, oh, Jimmy Carter does this and bam, people get big, but it's a pretty pretty good cause and effect here if you really think about it. And according to Charlie Papazian, who at the time was the president of the Brewers Association, he said roughly 90% of brewers started by making beer at home. Makes sense, right? That's pretty much most things you get good at, you start by trying out at home. So not at all surprising. But anyways, Carter basically just took the government out of the picture and allowed a new market to flourish. And Now, I don't think a lot of libertarians probably like Carter on other issues, but I think they would like this, and that's obviously why Reason Magazine picked this up. And to put this into even more perspective, I saw some numbers that say here in quotes, when President Jimmy Carter signed a bill legalizing home brewing in 1978, fewer than 100 breweries were operating in all of the United States. However, two years ago, a study of the country's beer scene found nine metropolitan areas with more than 100 active breweries. That's pretty crazy. And it's crazy to think that in the entire United States in the late 70s, there were only, there were less, I guess, than 100 breweries. And now there's some cities with 100, right? Crazy. And I mean, if you really think about it, I mean, I guess when I travel in the United States, like when I was going through Wyoming, I would always go, where should we eat? Oh, let's see if they have any like local brewery or something. Like it's a whole scene. It's a whole culture. It's fun to try new places and see what the local vibes are at a brewery. And I guess Jimmy Carter has some thanks for that. And the, the reason article ends by saying here in quotes, he nevertheless played a vital role by getting the federal government out of the way. Without him, we'd probably have fewer choices and less fun. So, you know, as we're all kind of talking about Jimmy Carter and reflecting on him as a person, as a president, as a leader, I, I think that's kind of a cool thing is that he's allowed a market to really boom. And good for you, Jimmy. Thank you, sir. Moving on, I want to do another iteration of my Netflix is pissing me off rants, 
which I've been doing more constantly because, well, Netflix is pissing me off. Ian Bogost has an article in The Atlantic about how Netflix has just crossed a line. And as I was reading it this morning when I got up, I, I just had to talk about it for a minute because it just had me nodding my head and just whispering, amen, man, just talking to myself about how, how much I agreed with the article, basically. And I think Bogus brings up a really great point when he writes about how when you buy something, you don't just buy the object or the thing you're trying to buy or the food or whatever it is. You also have secondary and tertiary objects that go with it. And he uses the example of a burger, right? So say you go to a drive-thru and get a Big Mac. There's secondary and tertiary soft products or whatever you want to call them that come along with the burger. Like you don't just get handed a burger. You get handed the box, the wrapper, maybe napkins, maybe the bag it comes into. These are all things that you kind of expect when you buy the burger, right? And another example that I've thought of, I guess, would be like if you buy a hotel room for the night, right? You're expecting there to be Wi-Fi, complimentary Wi-Fi. You're expecting there to be probably a TV or, you know, maybe they have shampoo and lotion in the bathroom, that type of stuff. These are soft products that go along with the main product, right? And Bogust argues that Netflix has broken its agreement with the consumer. And I think it's an interesting point and it's very accurate. And he talks about how, you know, they're, as I've talked about many times, they're working on cutting, cutting down the sharing of passwords. So, and in this case, Bogust argues that the sharing of passwords so others in your circle can watch movies and shows was a soft product that always had an appeal to users for over a decade. And now that Netflix is just pulling the plug on it, people like him are furious, people like me are furious, and they're just like, what the hell are you doing, Netflix? And he writes here in quotes, Netflix has made sharing a part of its soft product, a tiny, subtle, intimate connection with the people you care about. All hate watching Emily in Paris together. Now, side note, <laughs> I actually watched Emily in Paris because I liked it, so don't hate me too much on there. But I, I totally know what he means. Like, everyone shares each other's Netflixes, and it's just kind of a thing. It's this connection that people have, and I don't even know how to describe it as a connection, but it's definitely there. And later he writes here in quotes, to suddenly reframe that affordance as theft feels offensive because the company had previously positioned it as a kind of love. And that's also true. I can't agree with this anymore. The thing here is that for over a decade, almost 15 years probably, people have just kind of done it. Netflix hasn't done anything about it. And now people are, have come to expect that they can do it. And now Netflix is pulling the rug from under them. I just can't stand, like, because I've listened to some podcasts on this, and some of the hosts have been like, oh, cheap people are just complaining. Sorry, you now have to actually pay your bill. I don't think that's the point of it. Because, look, I pay for my Netflix. I could also bitch all day about how the prices are going up on it. But, hey, if my mom or a family member or a friend wants to use it, my mom wants to use it at her place, for example, go for it. I, I'm not going to lie. I sometimes like seeing what others are watching on my account. It kind of brings this form of connection to the platform. It's hard, it's hard to really articulate it, but I, I do feel like that's the case. And call me crazy, but that's kind of how I feel, and I'm standing firm on that. And, you know, it's the same with HBO. They haven't really cracked down on this, and I share the HBO with a few people. And I'm like, oh, cool, they're watching A. And they're like, oh, I saw you were watching insert B, whatever, you know. And, yeah, I just think it's kind of fun. And instead, Netflix is going backwards. And the last thing I'll say here before we get to actual uh, news stuff here is Bogus uh, wraps this all up the best possible way when he says in quotes here, 
The idea of paid sharing feels a bit like charging extra for the hamburger box. It is akin to going back to uh, metered text messaging or charging a long distance toll for video calls. Yeah, just imagine if like Verizon now started charging you per text message again, you know, and then you get the bill and you're like, holy crap. Like, that's what Netflix is doing. And again, like I said, they've already done this in Spain and we are next. So yay, I will not be surprised if Netflix sees a big decline in users. It would not surprise me at all. But maybe they'll make up money with, if people actually start paying for their accounts. Who knows? But I think it's just a bad idea for their image, which is already struggling. Okay, uh, <laughs> enough of my rants about um, Netflix and craft beer. Hey, though, the craft beer one is related to politics, so don't judge me there. But anyways, so I've been, I've been going back and forth, you know, reading news articles or hearing talking heads about, you know, the right is now mad that Biden met with Zelensky on President's Day while he should have gone to East Palestine, Ohio. By the way, I know I've been saying East Palestine. My dad corrected me on that last night. Uh, but anyways, yeah, so, um, you know, people are like, oh, President's Day, Biden should have gone to East Palestine. Instead, he was in Ukraine meeting with Zelensky. I've heard even some takes of like, I think it was Ben Shapiro who, <laughs> this was a good one. He said the the bomb sirens or the air, air raid sirens were um, staged whatever. Like, there's just bigger issues. So I, I like how that's what Ben Shapiro's talking about. But I guess, hey, I'm talking about it. So I don't know. He's, he's causing a storm here. But anyways, I don't know. It's interesting because I think two things can be true at once here. I do think the Biden administration needs to go to East Palestine. I do. At the same time, I, I also do understand why he wanted to go to Kiev. He was one of the last leaders to do it. I think if you're a genuine actor in politics and you want to talk about genuinely what's going on, I think you should be okay with what he did, to be completely honest. And like the Libertarian podcasts I listen to, they're all like, they're more concerned about the money and if this is going to be a forever war. They're not actually concerned about Biden going there to meet Zelensky. Even people like Nick Gillespie, who writes for Reason, He's like, I'm worried about the money, but I think it was good Biden went there to meet with Zelensky. They're like, every other European leader has mainly gone there to meet him. It was time for Biden to do it. You know, whatever. I also think like Biden, Biden kind of looked like a badass doing it. You know, he's getting older and he's like, I don't give an F. I don't, you know, if I die this way, whatever, but I'm going to Ukraine. I thought it was a good look for him, to be completely honest. Uh, walking with Zelensky in his shades, sirens going off. It was kind of badass, I'm not going to lie, but... You know, the right would have been mad no matter what. If he went to East Palestine instead, I'm sure there would have been some uproar about it, him doing it for political reasons or doing it in bad taste. <laughs> like, the, the party's just not going to like Biden no matter what. I mean, all you have to do is turn on Fox News and everything's Biden's fault. During the Obama years, everything was Obama's fault. They never look in the mirror and ask why Marjorie Taylor Greene is nuts, for example, but... Hey, the world keeps spinning, Fox News keeps putting out propaganda, and the Republicans hate Biden. I guess if you were a genuine actor or an authentic actor in this commentary world, you would kind of realize that some of these issues aren't really Biden or Trump's fault. I try to tell people that as much as possible. Like inflation, not really either guy's fault. Fuel prices, not really either guy's fault. You know, like, if you're genuine in the conversation, not everything is Biden's fault. Now, I do think East Palestine, if you want to get into it, both the Obama and the Trump administration did roll back regulations that seem to be part of the reason why this train derailed. Also, these, these 
this, this train company only had like two people, you know, working on this train, like supposed to monitor and rate all these different inspections. And, you know, they, for, for making profits, they cut back people working. So they want to make more money. So they made the trains less safe. And that's why you have regulations and yeah. So, I mean, if you did want to blame, I would probably say Trump scaled back a lot of regulations that should have been in place to make these things safer. That being said, <laughs> I hate to say it, but Trump, you know, went to East Palestine to do a rally while Biden was in Ukraine. And that'll probably work in Trump's favor because he's barely left Florida. And now he is, you know, on one of his only trips in the last year, he went to East Palestine where it's looking more and more like a massive disaster there. And that, I think, could help in the 2024 cycle. I'm not going to lie, because the Republicans can just really attack the Democrats, like the Pete Buttigiegs and the Bidens, for, you know, maybe not taking it as seriously. Now, I do think the media is covering it. I've never understood, like, Laura Ingram saying no one's talking about it. People are talking about it. I, I've seen every outlet talk about it. Now, maybe they're not talking about it as much as they should. Now, if this happened in, like, L.A. or New York City... I'm sure the New York Times would be doing nonstop coverage on it. So, of course, there's media bias out there. But it's just a big mess that the, that the Republicans are turning into a political football again. And Trump, say what you want about him. He's always good at, like, putting his hand in the air and seeing where the wind is blowing from and then going with it. So, anyways, uh, over a month ago, like, getting back to the Russia topic for a minute. Over a month ago, I talked about Dmitry Medvedev who, in college, I wrote some papers on this, but they kind of did this thing called a tandemocracy, where, you know, Putin was term limited out. So basically, he had Dmitry Medvedev become leader while Putin was his, like, number two. And then eventually, Medvedev changed the election laws and the term limits, and then Putin came back into power. And Medvedev has always seemed a little bit more moderate in the, in the Kremlin. He's always seemed a little bit more sane, but since the invasion of Ukraine, he's, he's batshit crazy, excuse my language. Uh, and about a month ago, maybe two months ago now, I talked about how he went on this very strange diatribe on Twitter, or maybe it was Telegraph, I, I forget. It was one of the two, and it talked about how he, he predicted there would be a Fourth Reich in Germany and Poland and Ukraine. There would be a civil war in the U.S. Well, maybe that one, he's not as wrong. Um, there would be a Russian victory. And the global order would change and Russia would dominate it. Seemed kind of insane considering how bad Russia's doing. But anyways, it just seems like he's gone down some rabbit hole or something. Um, Medvedev is just nuts. I don't know. But anyways, this time he actually said something interesting today. In quotes, he said, If Russia stops the special military operation without achieving victory, Russia will disappear. It will be torn to pieces. And he said this in a Telegram post on Wednesday using the euphemism for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And then, and then he said, in quotes, if the U.S. stops supplying weapons to Kiev, the war will end. And he refers to Kiev as the Kiev regime. Cause, and that tells me, again, all these people that say Putin just wants the Donbass or whatever, not true. Again, he's saying Kiev regime, the Kiev regime. They want the Kiev regime gone, which means they want, you know, they, they don't want to stop in the east and the south, basically. But anyways, very interesting rant here he went on, and I guess my first instinct is that he is just putting out nonsense like this because he wants to spread that propagandist message that the West can stop this conflict. It's in our hands. It's our fault. We can stop it. We'll have blood on our hands if we won't. Just more of this kind of gaslighting that we've seen 
before, right? Um, obviously, Russia's not doing well. Biden was just in Ukraine. We're scaling up arms to Ukraine. This would be the time to say that, you know, blood is on our hands, much like even the Chinese kind of said yesterday. And of course, this is probably partially the case. But at the same time, part of me does have concerns that if Russia does view this war as an existential cause, then it may be hard to end it, right? Like if if people like Medvedev do think Russia falls apart if the war is lost, that's existential. And I think it makes you wonder what will Russia do to win if it views this conflict as, as, as existential. And I don't think he's completely wrong when he says Russia would be torn apart. Can, I, I just can imagine the different factions that would come out of that. It would probably be chaos. It would probably be bloody. You know, I'm, all, all you can do is speculate. But just the system that Putin has kind of established there, I don't think it would be good. And also this comes at a time because CNN reports today in quotes here, Republican Representative Michael McCall, Mike McCall, he usually goes by, chairman of the U.S. Foreign Affairs Committee, told journalists he sees in quotes, increasing momentum in Washington towards providing Ukraine with F-16 fighter jets and long-range Army tactical missile system. ATACMS, I love that acronym. At the same time, Spain, CNN says, will send six Leopard 2A4 tanks to Ukraine. This is according to the Spanish Defense Minister Margarita Robles, and she told this to the Spanish Parliament on Wednesday. So, of course, they're escalating rhetoric towards the West when it looks like a lot of Europe and the United States are now escalating weapons and money being spent and, or sent to, uh, to Ukraine. So I think Russia's worried. I don't think Medvedev is wrong, actually, here that... This, this is existential. Maybe the thing is, though, maybe it's not existential for the Russian people, but it's existential for the Putin regime and for the current system in the country. And yeah, when you have an autocrat who's maybe afraid of losing power, that, that would keep me up at night. And there's a lot of things that keep me up at night because I'm kind of an insomniac, but that is definitely one of them. And, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what what kind of happens next or in the months ahead, right? Because we keep hearing of this new Russian offensive. Obviously, a lot of Europe is sending arms. It just makes you wonder how close are we to just Europe getting involved in this conflict directly? And then how does Russia respond? A lot of questions. I don't have any answers at the time, but things are changing quick enough that soon we may know. Moving on, going to the United States now for the rest of this, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, I, I think we should listen to what she said. Now, she said this on Sean Hannity, but I found a clip from her interview with Charlie Kirk, and she says the same things on both, so it's kind of a mood point. But anyways, she, I guess I'll just play the clip first, but she shows how she doesn't understand geography, the constitution, logic, sensibility, or what it means to live in a pluralistic society. So I'm going to play this clip. It's about 50 seconds. And then we'll we'll talk afterwards. And this is following her national divorce comments. And now she's kind of doubling down on some more insanity on the side. We've seen people fleeing uh, those leftist policies and moving to states like Florida, Georgia, Texas, um, you know, states where they they like the tax policies, they they like the schools, they li they like the consequences of Republican and red policies. Um, what I think would be something that some red states could propose is, well, okay, if if Democrat voters uh, choose to flee these blue states where they cannot tolerate the living conditions, they don't want their children taught these horrible things, and they really change their mind 
on the types of policies that they support. Well, once they move to a red state, guess what? Maybe you don't get to vote for five years. You can live there, you can work there, but you don't get to bring your values that you that you basically created in the blue states you came from by voting for Democrat leaders and Democrat policies. Now, I had trouble finding the Hannity one. I actually couldn't find the Hannity one. I, I did read an article that talked about the Hannity one, and apparently Hannity actually agreed with this. He thought it wasn't a bad idea to maybe say, like, you have to wait five years if you move to a red state to be able to vote. Now, Marjorie Taylor, again, shows me she is not a conservative. She is not a liberal. She's not a small-D Democrat. She doesn't believe in pluralism, the exchange of values. She is an authoritarian. Let's just get that straight right now. She's an authoritarian. She also just doesn't seem to understand like how laws and constitutions and dynamics work, right? Like, see, see, here's the thing. And here's the thing that really gets to me in this is that this is less red-blue state. This divide is, I think it's more simplified as a rural versus urban debate. Pretty much in any state, the urban areas are liberal, and the rural areas are conservative, Republican, whatever you want to call it. And so just having a red or blue state shows me that she doesn't even understand that. Because the thing is, is that you have a state, you have a state like Georgia, for example, where she's from, so you would think she would know this, is that there's a lot of blue people in, in, in Georgia, and there's a lot of red people in Georgia. So like, I don't know if just moving to a different state is, is that simple. And I've also always wanted to kind of push back on this. Like, I hear a lot of people in Reno here in Nevada, where I'm at right now, say all the Californians are coming over here and bringing their politics with them. Maybe sometimes, yeah. But the thing is, is that a lot of the people leaving California are not liberals. They're conservatives. They don't like it there. They don't like it in California, so that's why they're leaving. Okay? Like, like it's kind of insane to think, like, most people, if they like the liberal policies in California, they, they stay. It's the people that don't like them, maybe because they're conservatives living in a blue state, that end up coming to a rural area. So I just don't think she understands anything. And also, this would mean just like tearing apart the internal dynamics of a state. This national divorce shit that she talks about, it would not be super simple. These states are so difficult, difficult to really manage. And so you couldn't just say all, you know, all liberals move north and all you know, all, all conservatives move south. It's just not that simple. So anyways, yeah, um, I don't know how that works. And also, like, kind of voting is a key thing in our democracy. So saying you can't vote for five years, just I don't think that flies. And Jonathan V. Last, in his newsletter in The Bulwark, The Triad, which I recommend reading, it's quite good, he had a great quote here. He said, a Republican sitting on the Homeland Security Committee wants the homeland to split up. I, I thought that's the best way to put this. And I, I will also say the nation, which is very left, not usually something I agree with, actually does have quite a good article um, about, well, well, first off, I'll just say it's called The Real Problem with Marjorie Taylor Greene's Call for a National Divorce. And basically, this is by Ellie Mistel. And she says, for Greene, divorce is just another word for secession. And now, as it is then, it has everything to do with white supremacy. And, you know, at first I'm like, oh, this is just another woke liberal paper. But I think it's kind of true. I think part of it really is true because if, if you think about it, the coded language, and we've been talking a lot about coded language. Check out my fascism podcast from Monday. But 
this coded language is like urban. We don't like the urban cities. We don't like the violent crime. We don't like what they're teaching their woke politics in school. And I'll be the first to tell you, I think the woke movement is dangerous and stupid. But I think teaching kids in school about our history, which may make some of us uncomfortable, I don't think that's woke. I think that's just reality. And a lot of the things that she is against really do stem from us trying to have a difficult conversation about race. And basically, it sounds like she just wants kind of a, a white homeland. You know, uh, the woke culture that she thinks is disgusting is kind of built on multiculturalism and pluralism. Again, something she doesn't like. And Look, there's people on the left that also have entertained the idea of just a national divorce. I'm sure there's a lot of blue states that would probably be fine with it. But I guess the, the, the other logistical thing that the nation brings up here, I'll, I'll just read it. It says, in the past, as in the past, sorry, the white folks who want to secede will take a whole lot of black people with them. The new confederacy dreamed up a dreamed up by people like Green, includes states with the largest percentage of black folks by population and the largest raw number of black people. Mississippi is 39% black, Louisiana 33% black, Green's own Georgia 32% black, Texas is only 14% black, but 3.9 million black people live in Texas, more than anywhere else. Florida has the second highest number of black residents at 3.8 million. So then, so, so then the article poses, what happens to all these people? who will still be a distinct numerical minority after secession. And it's kind of a good point. It's kind of a good point. Like, and, and, now, and now the interesting thing, too, is that, I mean, it doesn't really matter. Like, maybe it's white supremacy being the root of it, but then the article talks about how this could extend to the LGBTQ plus community as well. You know, like, and we see this with the anti-trans bills, the anti-gay rhetoric, all of this. So what happens if you're one of these communities that can't move from the state that Marjorie Taylor Greene wants. I mean, I guess you become a second-class citizen, right? I mean, and I don't want to sound too radical, but I mean, what she wants is a red and blue state, but not everyone can just move. Um, it, I mean, it sounds like she wants a Scando, scanned America, like a Scandinavian-looking America, right? And yeah, I don't think it's radical to really say this is rooted in some form of racism and just, I think bigotry might be a better term, just bigotry towards people that she doesn't align with. And that could be ideological bigotry, that could be homophobia, Islamophobia, all the phobias, basically. And, I mean, there's just something, like, she's really showing her true colors here to me. It's, you know, it's just really showing her true colors to me. And it's, it's, it's fairly disturbing. And, you know, I think people hope that people like her are going to go away. But there's a lot of young people getting indoctrinated into that. I was talking to my uncle today about that, and he's like... These authors, because I sent him the article, and he's like, these authors seem to think they'll age out and fade away, but he's like, young idiots are being caught up with this as well, and it it is too bad. Now, the one thing I will say about Green, I don't know if it's a positive thing, but, <clears throat> excuse me, it's something I will say, is that other people have said this, and I think it's true. I think Marjorie Taylor Green is saying this national divorce stuff because she just knows it's impossible and she knows it won't happen. Maybe that's me being optimistic. Sarah Longwell, who's a great Never Trump pollster, one of the Bulwark's founders, she said today that when you live in a democracy or a society that has been stable for a long time, and we have been, she says there will be people who think it is so stable that they are happy to undermine it for their own reasons. And 
maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing this to kind of stir the pot and see who she can offend. That would not surprise me whatsoever. So anyways, it's disgusting. I mean, she doesn't want Democrats to vote if they're in the wrong state. That could expand to a lot of different human rights violations, I think. And I don't think it's too insane to say that because she's just saying it. So, I mean, I think we should be allowed to criticize it and talk about how extreme this could go. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcast. iTunes seems to be working fine now, so that's always good. And uh, let me know your thoughts. Um, how do you feel about Timothy Dalton and his James Bond? Am I crazy to say he's one of the best? Take care. We'll see you tomorrow. Adios. Adios.